Well, good morning once again. Please turn with me in your copy of the scripture to Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2 here on Christmas Eve, technically the last day of Advent. There will be a Christmas Day posting on our RBC Connect app. I'll actually preview a bit of that later on in the sermon, but I hope one way or another that you have cultivated a sense of longing, the sense of anticipation that I've discussed here from the pulpit last week and that we've tried to facilitate with our Advent readings, a sense of longing and anticipation that gives way to full-on celebration tomorrow, even as we've already begun to sing the celebration. We're doing the, the birthday party corporately, you might say, one, one day early for Jesus. What I would like to do this morning is walk through the well-known story that we heard read from Luke chapter 2. I intentionally have no slides. For some of you, maybe a bummer, or some of them is like, oh, thank you. You know, I, I don't know. I'm not really sure. Uh, but I would just encourage you to, most of you, to not even take notes, but to just listen to the old story afresh as I do the best I can to tell it. And, and, and we remember and celebrate the birth of Jesus together this morning. So here in Luke 2, we've already heard it read. Let's walk through it Together we read that in those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was the governor of Syria. So this would have been a decree, this would have been an imperial edict, and what it's for is for a census. It would be a, census, a population count, that is. It would not have been a census for the army, it would have been a census for tax purposes. And this order goes out from the emperor to all the world. All the world right here, like it is also other places understood, is not literally what you and I would understand the whole world to be, but would be the whole Roman Empire, which for many people, if you think about it, would be the whole known world to them at the time. So he's not saying that people you know, in the Americas, what is now the Americas we're supposed to, it is the whole Roman Empire Gaius or Gaius, depending on how you want to pronounce it, Octavian, formerly was part of the Roman Senate, and he bestowed upon himself the name Augustus. He became Caesar. He bestowed upon himself the name Augustus. It's a suffix that means exalted or sacred, which is, you might think, a very presumptuous thing to do, and in fact it was. He clearly had a high opinion of himself, But what we see right here in a very similar way to Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon and Cyrus in Persia is Luke painting a picture of rulers of nations bringing to pass the sovereign plan of God through the ordinary machinations of politics, empire, and even imperialism. That's what we see. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David. Now, Galilee is in the north. 
Bethlehem is in the south. So why did he go up? Well, he went up because it was elevated. It was elevated. You literally went up when you went from Galilee up to Bethlehem. And even the region around Jerusalem, you always go in the Bible, you go up to Jerusalem, regardless of where you're at theologically. But anyways, they went up. You would have to go back to your own town to register for the census. And so Joseph heads to Bethlehem because he was descended of David. Now remember, is, is it Jerusalem or is it Bethlehem that's the city of David? One of the Bible B questions for some of our kids in here. And the answer is both. Both. Uh, both Bethlehem and Jerusalem are the city of David. Bethlehem is where he was born. Jerusalem is where he lived and, and the city from which he ruled. But both could be considered the city of David. But this was the ancestral city of David. And so that's why Joseph heads back to Bethlehem. And then in verse 5, some of the challenges and some of the surprises and even some of the awkwardness starts to begin. So we know that he is headed back to Bethlehem because he's of the house and lineage of David to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. Okay. Okay. Now let's just listen to this part afresh again. First, Bethlehem is about 80 miles from Galilee. Galilee, Bethlehem, about 80 miles. That is a long way for a woman in her third trimester in the first century to travel. Should also be pointed out that nowhere in the text here or in Matthew does it say anything about Mary riding a donkey. The Zechariah prophecy about the donkey, the colt, is about Jesus coming into Jerusalem, not about Mary going into Bethlehem. I think it could probably be very reasonably assumed that, that they had an animal to ride, but that's simply not part of the account. Regardless, it's a long trek for a pregnant woman. The second is that women actually didn't have to go register. Women did not have to go register. The head of the household could do it. The head of their, their husbands could do it for them, and yet Mary accompanies him anyways, despite almost certainly having family in her region there in Galilee who could have been of assistance. Mary decides to go with Joseph anyways. Third thing is that Joseph had committed to take Mary as his wife because of what the angel said, but they were still in a betrothal period, okay? They're not married yet, but it was more formal than engagement is now, so much so that when you read in Matthew chapter 1, it said he, he sought being a just man. He was going to divorce her quietly. You might have asked, well, how can you divorce someone if you're not married to him yet? Well, betrothal, that's how. It's just, it was something that was more than mere engagement, but less than marriages during this period, but critically, where the two parties had not come together yet in any kind of sexual union. And we are only left to speculate how awkward it must have been to go back home to see extended family who would have been in Bethlehem also returning for the census. Introducing Mary, your betrothed, very, very pregnant, and then trying to explain exactly how that happened. Well, no, trust me, here's what happened. There was an angel that appeared 
and said she was going to bear the Son of God. That's, that's what accounts for this. In the words of one cynical philosopher, which one was more likely, that a virgin conceived and bare a son or that a Jewish girl fibbed? Well, from our perspective on the ground, that's an easy one to answer. But Joseph and Mary were left to give an explanation to the people there in Bethlehem when they returned. Did Mary go with Joseph simply because she was late in pregnancy and didn't want to be without him in particular? Did she make this trek because she had read Micah chapter 5 and in some sense saw herself as, you know, proactively fulfilling prophecy? We don't know. We have no idea, and in one sense it doesn't matter, does it? In one sense it doesn't matter. What matters is that God and His sovereignty over betrothal arrangements labor and delivery times, population counts, and conception itself worked to bring about His promises, to bring Himself to us, Emmanuel, God with us, in the precise manner that He had foretold. That's what matters. And so Mary and Joseph, challenges and awkwardnesses aside, end up in Bethlehem. And so... While they were there, the time came for her to give birth. There's nothing quite like giving birth on a road trip in the first century. Absolutely nothing ideal about this. Certainly nothing glamorous. And then we read the verse that's probably the most famous verse in the Christmas account right here. Verse 7. She gave birth to her firstborn son wrapped him in swaddling cloths, and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the end. Swaddling cloths were used to keep the baby's arms and legs straight. That was kind of infant care best practice at the time, and so that's kind of what they would have done. Laid him down in a manger. This would have been a feeding trough for animals, because there was no room in the cataluma. The cataluma. There was no room in the end. Now, there's a lot of discussion about this word. When you and I hear the word in, you and I think of something like Jerusalem Inn and Suites. We think of a first century hotel. But, and, and then, then what we have to conclude from that is both Mary and Joseph apparently didn't have the foresight to think that maybe when everyone was going back to Bethlehem, the hotel would be booked up. I mean, it is a very dense reading of it. But, but the English word in conjures that up in our mind. But Luke actually uses a different word for that kind of in in the parable of the Good Samaritan. In the parable of the Good Samaritan, we hear about an in, which is exactly like what you and I are thinking. He went to him, this is the Good Samaritan, going to this man who's... Uh, uh, been taken advantage of and injured by these robbers and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine, and then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave him to the innkeeper, saying, take care of him, whatever you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Here the word inn is a totally different word that Luke uses to describe that kind of inn that had an innkeeper and it was like a hotel. The word cataluma here, though, 
is the same word that Luke uses to describe the guest room or the upper room where Jesus celebrated Passover with his disciples. So, for example, in Luke twenty two eleven, when Jesus is saying, go into the city, he says, tell, tell the master of the house, the teacher says to you, where is the guest room? Where is the cataluma? Where I may eat the Passover with my disciples, this upper room. We, we can't be 100% sure about the precise conditions of the environment in which Mary gave birth, but we can know with certainty what did not happen, and that was that she gave birth in the barn, in a barn in the middle of nowhere. Not at all culturally plausible, at all. Kenneth Bailey, who was an expert in Middle Eastern studies and a Christian scholar, the late Kenneth Bailey, unfortunately he passed away. Listen to what he says here. He says, even if he has had never been there before, he can appear suddenly at the home of a distant cousin, recite his genealogy, and he is among friends. Joseph had only to say, I am Joseph, the son of Jacob, the son of Mathan, the son of Eleazar, the son of Eliad. And the immediate response must have been, you are welcome. What can we do for you? If Joseph did have some member of the extended family resident in the village, he was honor-bound to seek them out. Furthermore, if he did not have family or friends in the village as a member of the famous house of David, and for the sake of David, he would still be welcomed into almost any village home. So a far more likely picture is this. And I understand that it, this ruins some of the nativity scenes on your counter, okay? I understand. But here's a far more likely picture. Joseph show up, Mary and Joseph show up, and whether they approach friends or family, the guest room, the Cataluma, which was either on the, in the back of the house or sometimes on top of the roof, it was already occupied. It was full because everyone else had come back for the census as, as well. But most families lived in a single room house. And so the idea was, the best way to describe it is it was almost an indoor, think of it as like a, you know, kind of a two-story high ceiling house, uh, but there was almost like a courtyard inside the house where you would bring your animals, where you would bring your animals in, and then kind of the sleeping and food storage would be, there'd be kind of stairs or a ladder, and it would be essentially like a loft, what we would call a loft. You would go up and you could actually look over and see down into this almost indoor courtyard, and then down on the bottom there, there would have been kitchen area to prepare meals and start fires and things like that. It was kind of a common space that was below the main living area, which would have been kind of the loft area, and then the Cataluma would have been in back of that or on top of the roof. And so the same scholar, Bailey, points out that that these houses had a lower level for animals to be brought in at night, although it doesn't say there are actually animals there at this particular time. The mangers clarify that this is the location that they were at. Either a room at the back for visitors or a space on the roof would have been the guest room. The family living area would usually have hollows in the ground filled with hay in the living area where the animals would feed. And so what's much more likely is that they are staying in that downstairs area of the home. They don't have the upholstered cushions upstairs. They're not up there where, every, where you would sleep, properly speaking, but they were downstairs. And that Mary placed him in a manger because it would have been softer for a bed. So whether it was a common area in a more public place or the common area in a private home, 
where animals could have been and down where the kitchen and, and fires would have been started. Culturally speaking, it is just wholly implausible that they were alone out in the barn. And by the way, if they were, it becomes very difficult to explain the all who heard of verse 18. We're not there yet. Verse 18. All who heard what the shepherds said. Who is all who heard if it was just the shepherds and Mary and Joseph? Okay? But we're not there yet. But all the debated details shouldn't distract us from the main thing. You've got to keep the main thing the main thing. This is a Christ of the lowly. There is no glory here. This is not majesty. In fact, this is about as opposite of majesty as you could possibly get. This is as humble as you could possibly get. And with that, it just kind of ends there and we get a scene change. It's like the camera totally cuts to a different scene. And then it's going to bring the two scenes together to close the Christmas account. Scene change, verse 8. What do we read? And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. Now, we don't know how far away they were exactly. We know that they were close enough in the region in order to make it on foot to see this child who had been born, but that's about it. It's worth pointing out that unlike our kind of warm images of a shepherd and shepherding, and certainly the dignity of shepherding as a family that would have been present in the time of David, for example, by this time, the shepherding business was a very despised occupation. I don't, I'm not sure if it was quite to the level of a tax collector, but it was pretty, it was down the, the list, okay? One scholar says it like this, one should not romanticize the occupation of shepherds. In general, shepherds were considered dishonest and unclean according to the standards of the law. They represent the outcasts and sinners for whom Jesus came. Such outcasts were the first recipients of the good news. Such outcasts. People who were considered dishonest, unclean, were the first people to hear the good news. And so in the darkness of the night, the angel of the Lord shows up in glory. And what do they do? They freak out. Which should not be surprising to any of us who are here as we went through the book of Daniel. And an angel of the Lord in the darkness appeared to them. And the glory of the Lord shone around them and they were filled with great fear. You remember in Daniel, the angel, the, the, the angel he encounters the Lord. He passes out like three times. I mean, he's just utterly undone by something like this. And so these shepherds are just freaking out. And so the angel has to have a angel of the Lord has to have kind of a calm down speech. You know, that's what he gives, the old fear not. The angel said to them, Fear not, for behold. I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Don't fear, he says. I am here, and then all this this verb I bring to you, the great new, good news, this is all one word. It's literally something like, to, if we were to be in English, to gospelize. I bring, uh, to announce or to proclaim or to bring the gospel, which means good news. Which means good news. 
He comforts them with the very beginnings of the gospel of Christ. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. Now notice that. Savior, Messiah, the Lord. Notice what name doesn't make it into this list. Jesus. There will be a Savior born. You'll find him and his name will be Jesus. It's not there. Not because it's not important. Because they're trying to say what kind of a child this is. Not merely what his name is. He is someone who is to save the people. He is someone who is the Messiah, the Anointed One, and the Lord. I mean, everyone was waiting for a Messiah. But this says that the Lord was born. Now listen, the shepherds didn't have PhDs or anything, but they understood who Yahweh was. Surely this was striking. And the only thing that might have been more striking, that Christ the Lord was born, was the sign that was given. Verse 12, and this will be a sign for you. You'll find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths, and lying in a golden cradle with diadems all around it. No. Lying in a manger. A feeding trough. This Christ the Lord that's been born to save you. That's where He's at. The angel kind of begs the question about whether or not they're going to go. Of course he assumes that you're going to go see this. Thing. So I'm going to give you a sign here. Swaddling cloths, lying in a manger. Shepherds surely must have been surprised. I mean, first there's got the surprise of the angel of the Lord. Then they got a surprise that Christ the Lord has been born. Then they got a surprise they're going to find him in a feeding trough. I mean, folks, this is a strange story so far. Perhaps these shepherds even say, wow, these, these despised shepherds say, well, may, maybe, maybe this king is a king for people like me. Maybe this is a king who came for people like me. And then what, is, what do we hear? 13 and 14. The choir joins in out of heaven. Startling, I'm sure. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Remember that peace that we heard so much about last week? Peace. 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 Here it is. Peace. The shalom, the fullness of reconciliation, will be among those upon those with whom he is pleased. And so notice that even from the very first announcement of the gospel, the good news was not that God's peace would rest on anyone and everyone. That's not what it says. That's not the good news. In its initial proclamation, even in its initial form, that's not what it is. The good news is that His peace will, will lie on those, will rest on those with whom He is pleased. 
God's pleasure and delight is reserved for those who walk before him faithfully. And so even before Jesus is out of the manger, discipleship is in the picture. Even before Jesus is out of the manger, this idea of discipleship and living a life that is pleasing to the Lord is in the picture. So we don't know how long they stood around. We don't know exactly what is said. But as if they were going to do anything else, when the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. Now there's a subtle but critical detail here. There's a subtle but critical detail here. Let us go over to Bethlehem, see this thing that's happened, which the Lord had made known to us. They understood with no confusion that Christ the Lord had just been born and that the Lord had revealed that to them. Now, how did the Lord reveal it to him? He was just born. Well, of course, we know the answer to that. Reminder to us and a proclamation to them that the Lord of the manger is the Lord of the moon and the mountains. And that Christ upheld the molecules in the hay that upheld him. This is no ordinary man. This is no ordinary child. And so they, they, they act decisively. They move. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and saw the baby lying in a manger. And what is what a scene this must have been. Remember, there's no wise men. I'm sorry if that also ruins your nativity scene. They came later. A bunch of nasty shepherds piling in trying to see, get a glimpse of this child. When they saw, they gave their own account of what God had revealed to them. They said, when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And then here's verse 18 that I mentioned earlier. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. They announced in one sense what Gabriel had already confirmed, or they confirmed really, I should say, what Gabriel had already confirmed, had, had announced to Mary. But other folks were there. Were they family? Were they friends? Were they just other folks that were in a, in a more public common area? It isn't entirely clear. But everyone who heard it wondered. And the wonder, the, the, the word that is used here for wonder is not wonder like questioning, like I wonder, you know, what's going on. But this is a marvel. That is to say, they stood astonished by what they heard. They were astonished by what they heard. And, and we can't help to be astonished with them just once more, can we? I mean, just imagine being one of the adults in this room, standing around looking down at this child in a manger and thinking, this is the Lord our Savior. What were their expectations? What were Mary's expectations? You know, 
there wasn't a big list of things given to Mary to what to expect. I mean, she knew who she was going to give birth to, but she was going to give birth to someone who was God in the flesh. This is what was going to happen. She was going to give birth to the first self-sufficient baby ever. Doesn't that stand to reason? Without any further information, I'm going to give birth to God in the flesh. This baby is not even going to cry. This baby feeds itself. No, that's not the case. Mary's reaction is a bit different, isn't it? You know, we have to imagine that she, you know, she'd already been told she was giving birth to Messiah. And had a child conceived by the Holy Spirit. So listen, she's had nine months to be astonished. So we get a little bit of a contrast here with a but. So all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But, but Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. So she treasures them. She gets them together, keeps them as treasure, and she ponders. And that is very much a word that is questioning, considering thinking about all of these things. What does this life look like? Yes, remember, Gabriel told her that she would bear this child, but there wasn't a question and answer session. She didn't get a copy of Raising Jesus. Think of how many questions that she had. They come, they say all these things, People show up for the birth of your child. Strangers, shepherds, to see them. In that moment, what was promised became real for her in a concrete way. Like, here it is. You ever been there in a place like that? We've been waiting for this for a long time, and finally here it is. And you're like, oh, what is, what's going on exactly? Mary clearly didn't have all the answers. And frankly, sometimes that's the most challenging thing, isn't it? Not having the answers. The fear of the unknown. But especially when your child's a son of God. <coughs> and in a verse that teaches us much more than we might imagine, verse 20 closes the Christmas story. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen, as it had been told them. Don't miss this. The Christmas story ends with shepherds returning to their ordinary responsibilities. They didn't even take a half day or night, as the case may be. They saw the Messiah, God in the flesh. And they said, all right. Time to get back at it. Time to get back to work. They didn't hit the preaching circuit. They didn't have a radical profession change, even though their profession wasn't seen in the rosiest light. They went back to exactly what they were doing, but with a different disposition in a different perspective. In fact, the way they go back is the same way the angelic choir announced things to them. They go back praising and giving glory to God because of what they had heard and seen that one night. 
a night that will never be repeated in, redemp in redemptive history. They were privy to that. So they went back to the ordinary task of plodding along as shepherds right after seeing this, but with new perspective and a different disposition. And so, as we think about Christmas on the other side of Christ's death and resurrection, we stand in the period of second advent, waiting, longing. And we have to ask ourselves, how does our encounter with God our Savior, Christ the Lord, risen now to reign, change how we return to what we do? To the ordinary plotting of life. Most people's life in here, listen, I'm, we have a lot of really fulfilling lives living in this church. I'm so glad for it. But full of excitement and adventure on a daily basis is, doesn't characterize most people's lives. You might say, well, every day is an adventure in my house. I understand what you mean. But if it happens every day, that counts as ordinary. Okay? Because here's the thing, the thrill of tomorrow will pass. We'll celebrate Christmas. Christmas is here. And we have our tokens of celebration, our trees and our lights. But sooner or later, those will get packed up. Back in the attic or the storage unit or whatever it is, garage. And then we'll all have the same exact question to answer. How do we return to what God has called us to do, but with a different disposition and a different perspective because of who we've encountered in Christ? Hearts reminded of the one who has come for us and the one who is coming back for us. I want to close by cheating, by reading some of the Advent reading for tomorrow which is technically not Advent. This is last technically the last day of Advent coming, because tomorrow he has come. But I want you to listen to the words of Spurgeon as he reflects on the meaning of Christmas and really the incarnation, because that's what we celebrate at Christmas, right? Spurgeon says this, His promises have been yes and amen. I speak the testimony of every believer in Christ, though I put it personally to make it more forcible. I bear witness that never servant had such a master as I have. Never brother had such a kinsman as he has been to me. Never spouse had such a husband as Christ has been to my soul. Never sinner a better savior. Never soldier a better captain. Never mourner a better comforter than Christ hath been to my spirit. I want none beside him. In life he is my life. And in death he shall be the death of death. In poverty Christ is our riches. In sickness he makes our bed. In darkness he is our star. And in brightness he is our sun. And so... It is almost time to celebrate the birth of a son with family, perhaps friends, gifts tomorrow, as they point us to something more beautiful and more satisfying 
than we will ever be able to truly grasp. And so I want to urge us to press into those things for the glory of Christ as we all say to one another, Merry Christmas. Let's pray. God, we are so thankful that heaven and earth collided in an unprecedented way thousands of years ago. That Christ the Lord was born. Born King. One who would go from trough to tree on the way to triumph. We are thankful for the opportunity to participate in this story of redemption. Those of us who have been united to Christ. Who have taken this good news. That a king has died in our place for our sin. Then raised from the dead. That if we repent and believe this gospel, that we would have newness of life and eternally. God, I pray peace and shalom over every family and individual represented in this room. But I also pray that Every single person would take inventory of their own heart and ask, what needs to be done for that to happen in my life? We thank you for your grace. We thank you for your mercy. And we ask that tomorrow you would prepare us to celebrate loudly. In Jesus' name.